I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bible in front of you, to the book of Acts, to uh, Acts chapter 26, which is going to be our scripture reading before we uh, begin the message this morning. So Acts chapter 26, beginning of verse 1, reading from the English Standard Version. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. I'll explain the context here as I get into the message. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Now, I just have to pause for a second. Adelina, I would love to hold you again, but I'm a little bit preoccupied. Thank you, my love. And when, he, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to these things in which you have, in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. 
And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to understand your word. May your word speak to us. May it confirm us in our faith, deepen our belief, deepen our understanding, and remind us of the centrality of the resurrection of your Son from the dead for our faith and walk with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Back in the early 1940s, uh, Dr. J.S. Whale was delivering a series of lectures to the undergraduates at Cambridge as well as to the faculty on the subject of Christian doctrine. And then on page 73 of those published lectures, he wrote this. Belief in the resurrection is not an appendage to the Christian faith. It is the Christian faith. The full diet of public worship on any Sunday, anywhere throughout Christendom, is the celebration of the resurrection of the Redeemer. This is the only sufficient basis and guarantee of the Christian faith. It is not tacked on to the gospel story to make a happy ending or to hide what without it would be the supreme tragedy of history. It is implicit in the story from the beginning. It is from the foundation of the world. We cannot begin to understand how it happened. The gospels cannot explain the resurrection. It is the resurrection alone which explains the gospels. Now, Dr. Wells' statement is completely accurate. Easter morning celebrates the most necessary historical fact of the Christian faith. Good Friday could not be called good unless Jesus rose Sunday morning. The only reason that Christianity has any right to exist, now listen carefully, the only reason that Christianity has any right to exist is based upon something which had to have happened the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And it is a very stubborn fact. No matter how often the basis for the Christian faith has been attacked, there are at least six facts about the resurrection that history has never been able to erase. Let me just repeat these for you. First, scholars know that Christianity is the great surprise of history. It's a matter of historical record that the Christian faith began as a very tiny movement 
within a hostile and pagan Roman Empire. So how the Christian movement was able to become the dominant religion officially sanctioned by the Roman Empire within 300 years is the great historical surprise. Historians have no good explanation for how this happened unless they happen to believe that God was at work supernaturally. Secondly, it's surprising to many, but it was not the teachings of the Christian faith that caused this to happen. That is, it was not the teachings that brought about the establishment and the dominance of the Christian faith. It wasn't the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't this new idea about the fatherhood of God. Uh, It wasn't this incredibly new notion that God is love, which actually inspired the Christian movement and enabled it to conquer a pagan world. Rather, it was the conviction, passionately held by the followers of Jesus, that he was raised from the dead. That was the most central and earliest Christian conviction. The third thing is that the resurrection is an entirely unique claim by the Christian faith. No other historical religion has ever claimed that God raised its founder from the dead. It just doesn't exist. Christianity is a species all to itself in this particular claim. This is how it's unlike every other religion. When you get into these comparative religion studies classes and colleges and universities that say, here's how all the religions are alike, the one outstanding fact in which Christianity is exceptionally different It is the only one that claims that its founder was raised from the dead by God. A fourth fact of history that can't be erased is that women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. Now, that's significantly presented in all the Gospels. But what makes it especially significant is the Gospel of Matthew, which is especially the Jewish Gospel, highlights and presents the fact that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Now, why is that significant? Because in biblical times and in the Jewish world, you have to understand that in a court of law, a woman's testimony was not counted of any significance. It had no testamentary or legal value. So if the story about the resurrection of Jesus was, quote, fake news, then if it was invented solely for religious purposes, propaganda purposes, we would never find the Jewish writers of the New Testament having women being the very first witnesses to the resurrection. It just doesn't make sense, unless that's exactly how it happened. A fifth element about the resurrection. The verdict of history is that the tomb on Easter morning was empty. All of the critics have have tried to come up with alternative theories as to why the tomb of Jesus was empty. And all of their various four or five theories entirely cancel each other out in terms of how they try to explain away the resurrection. The one fact emerges in history. There was no dead body of Jesus in the tomb on Easter morning. That's why for 1,200 years... The Jewish religion carried the story that the disciples had come along and stolen the body of Jesus. For 1,200 years, that was the historic official position of Judaism. 
Why was the tomb empty? The, the disciples came and stole the body. But there are problems with that idea as well. The last fact is this. All of the recent attacks upon the resurrection by New Testament critics, by the atheists, by anti-Christian scholars, no one today and no one for the last 200 years has said anything new. The most recent evaluations of the scholarship concerning the resurrection of Jesus, the most recent critical studies, the most recent skeptical and unbelieving studies about the resurrection are simply taking old theories, warming them up, dressing them up for the audience today. There has been no new idea about the resurrection story by critics in over 200 years. Now, what does all that mean? It means that the resurrection and the story of the resurrection is incredibly stubborn when it comes to history. It's the central fact of the Christian faith. It's the only fact that explains the Christian faith. If it didn't happen, then the existence of the Christian faith can't really be explained. Now, we find this same stubborn historical reality when we look at the Apostle Paul and his conversion. That Paul was converted to the Christian faith, that Paul became its greatest apostle, that Paul became the man who would write half of the New Testament scriptures. All of that is beyond question historically. But how did it happen? And, and why did it happen? Why did Paul convert? This is the question of greatest historical significance. And it is truly a very, very, very big question. Either we accept Paul's own testimony or we have to reject it. But if we reject what Paul says, then some alternative explanation has to be given. Something which has both the power to explain why he would have changed his viewpoint and why, in changing his viewpoint, his lifelong insistence was that Jesus had risen from the dead. The scriptures themselves recognize the great significance of Paul's conversion. Uh, many passages speak about it. But in this particular passage, we have the most complete presentation. And it's significant because it is a very official setting. Paul is appearing before King Agrippa and the king's sister, Bernice. The royal family has come down to Caesarea, which is now the, the capital of the Roman occupation of Palestine, uh, to pay their respects to uh, the new uh, governor of the region, Festus. Pontius Pilate has long been expelled from his position as governor. Uh, because Agrippa is an expert on Jewish affairs, the Roman governor, Festus, wants to ask his advice about what to do with Paul. Paul's been in custody for about two years. Uh, to keep from being handed over unjustly to the Jews, because the Jews want him and the Jews want to kill him, Paul has appealed his case to Caesar. That was his privilege as a Roman citizen. But the governor is having a hard time formulating any genuine criminal charge to present against Paul when he sends Paul from Palestine all the way to Rome. So he brings Paul into this audience. Uh, he wants him to be examined. He wants King Agrippa 
to have this opportunity to examine Paul so that Agrippa might advise him as to what should the charges be. Now, in terms of what Paul is going to say, here is the great claim that Paul will make. That unless Jesus rose from the dead, his conversion to the Christian faith from his Jewish convictions makes no sense at all. Or to put it this way, Paul's conversion can only be explained if Jesus rose from the dead. And from our perspective, there is no greater evidence for the resurrection than the conversion of this man, Paul. Now, Paul's presentation has, of course, three parts. Every one of my messages has three parts. First, middle, and last. But Paul's presentation actually does have three parts. In the first part, he's going to explain to King Agrippa how he was first and foremost a hostile witness against the resurrection. The second part is going to explain how this changed and how he became an historical witness to the resurrection and for the resurrection. And then finally, he's going to tell King Agrippa that he has lived his life as a harassed witness in defense of the resurrection. So, Paul's conversion story, his story before Agrippa, three parts. The hostile witness, historical witness, harassed witness concerning the resurrection of Christ. So, first then, Paul is going to tell Agrippa how formerly he was this incredibly hostile witness against the Christian faith. He does so in verses 1 through 11. Paul establishes his credentials by reminding Agrippa how he lived in his pre-Christian days. So in verses 4 to 5, Paul relates all that the Jews know about his story, that he was raised and lived his life according to the strictest sect of the Jews, uh, that he was a Pharisee, that all the Jews know that during this period of time, Paul was one of the greatest enemies of Jesus, even as the Pharisees as a sect were the greatest enemies of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Then verses 9 through 11, Paul describes his own personal antagonism, his own personal opposition toward the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, if you look at those verses, you see that Paul describes it as a raging fury, which motivated him to pursue Jewish Christians to prison, to cast his vote in favor when they were put to death, to punish them in all of the synagogues, even traveling to foreign cities to carry out those instructions, those persecutions. Now, this testimony makes it clear who Paul was and what Paul believed and what motivated Paul's life before he became a Christian. It demonstrates three important facts about Paul's testimony. First, this hostility against Christians and against the name of Jesus, against all the Jewish followers of Christ, was real. Paul wants to get this point across. He wants to impress upon King Agrippa that in his pre-Christian days, he had this genuine enmity against the Christian faith. He wasn't neutral. He wasn't sympathetic. He wasn't thinking about becoming a Christian. He wasn't open in any way at all to the Christian faith. He was a hostile witness against the name of Jesus. But not only does Paul present the hostility, but he states the intensity of it. Paul wants Agrippa to know that, as was said in verse 11, it was a raging fury. He wants the king to know that his opposition was an all-consuming passion in his life. It controlled and motivated his life. 
Among his Jewish contemporaries, this was his outstanding claim to fame. But then thirdly, Paul wants Agrippa to recognize that his intense hostility against the name of Jesus was religiously motivated. He was motivated by his commitment to God as a Pharisee, the strictest party of the Jewish faith. Paul was convinced from his most fundamental principles as a Pharisee that it was his duty to persecute the followers of Jesus. It was his duty to see that they were put to death. Now, these facts establish the reality of Paul's persecution against the church, not just to King Agrippa, but really to all the rest of of history. For what happened to Paul was a thorough change in his religious convictions and his whole mission and his purpose in life. So here's the big question. If Paul was so deeply, emotionally, and religiously opposed to Jesus and his followers, then what could be powerful enough to change Paul the Pharisee, the hater and persecutor of Christians, and to Paul, the apostle of the Christian faith? What could bring about such a radical change? What could possibly prove to Paul that he had been wrong about Jesus? What could possibly reverse his perspective? That's the big question of history. That's Paul's point to King Agrippa. I once was a hostile witness to the name of Jesus. What could possibly have changed me so radically from the person I was to the person that I am now? Well, that then leads into Paul's second point, how he became an historical witness to the resurrection. Now, in verses 12 through 18, Paul describes his encounter with the risen Christ which happened while he was on the road to Damascus, where he had the authority to arrest uh, from the chief priest to arrest those Jews who were following Jesus and even to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. So in verses 13 through 15, Paul describes what happens to him in these words. He says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me, and those who journeyed with me, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, here's what Paul was claiming. The event which had the power to transform him totally from Pharisee and persecutor to apostle and defender was nothing less than an encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. This encounter with the risen Christ is what radically changed him. From this point on, Paul is convinced the Christian way is true, that his former Life, his former paradigm, religiously, everything formally was false. Now, later in this chapter, the Roman governor is going to say uh, that Paul is out of his mind, verse 25, that Paul's great learning has driven him mad. Well, ever since that day, from the Apostle Paul's time of conversion, critics have tried to echo what Festus was trying to claim, saying that whatever Paul encountered, it was something going on inside of an unbalanced mind. 
some kind of mental impairment, some kind of hallucination, but not something that actually happened. But in response to Festus, look at what Paul says in verse 25. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Now, appreciate Paul's claim. Appreciate the clarity with which Paul speaks. In the strongest possible language, Paul is claiming that he's given the sober truth about what has happened. Not a feeling. The language here in the Greek has nothing to do with emotions. It has everything to do with a rational conviction that what he says matches what actually took place. What changed him on the road to Damascus was he encountered the resurrected Christ. Now, the changes in Paul are are so undeniable that critics have recognized that something must have happened. There has to be some explanation. Now, they want it to be something other than Jesus rising from the dead, but they have to supply something in its place. Some argue, you can read these theories, that Paul reacted to a thunderstorm and a flash of lightning outside of Damascus. Some say that, well, Paul must have had an epileptic seizure or sunstroke. Others say that Paul was experiencing a kind of repressed guilt over his persecution, fanatical persecution of the Jewish Christians, causing a mental breakdown that even caused that psychogenic blindness that he experienced. The concern of the critics has always been to come up with a theory that places Paul's experiences either in the mystical realm or in the realm of an unbalanced set of mental processes or in the totally subjective realm. The idea is to reduce Paul's claim from an historical truth to some kind of deep misunderstanding on Paul's part, something which makes Paul's testimony totally unreliable. Here's the problem. None of these explanations for Paul's radical change of beliefs and character and life actually help to explain how what Paul experienced was a permanent transformation. How did that come about? You see, if Paul's mind was unbalanced in any measure for a season, uh, if somehow he thought Jesus had risen from the dead because his mind was unbalanced, well, then we would expect Paul's conversion to last only as long as he remained mentally unbalanced. That is to say, this would have been a temporary disorder, a temporary conversion. But as soon as Paul would come back into his right mind, he would have gone from conversion to reversion back to a Pharisee and back again to being an enemy of the Christian faith. Instead, we have Paul testifying some 25 years later before King Agrippa that he is in his right mind, that he's speaking words of truth and rationality, that he has had nothing less than a genuine historical encounter with the risen Christ. Now, Paul made the same claim to the church at Corinth. Uh, we read some of these verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. There Paul takes pains to describe the resurrection of Jesus as an historical event. Now, here's what's important about that passage. He does not place the truthfulness of the resurrection upon his own experience. No, here's what he says. There were many eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, including all of the apostles, including even as many as 500 people who saw Jesus on these occasions, most of whom, Paul says, are still alive. 
Then Paul says, and then, last of all, Jesus appears to me as one untimely born. So Paul is claiming to King Agrippa that he is an historical witness to an actual fact. And that is the way Paul's testimony, Paul wants his testimony to be framed. Back in verse 8, we see that Paul begins with this question, why should we consider it incredible that God would raise the dead? And then in verse 23, Paul sums it up by saying that Jesus and the resurrection concerning Christ, that Christ is the first to rise from the dead. But not only does Paul make the claim that his encounter with Jesus was an historical experience, he's also claiming that it was a hermeneutical experience. Now, the word hermeneutic may may not be familiar to all of you, but the term hermeneutic is one that describes the principles by which you interpret what you read and what you experience. Hermeneutics basically just refers to your principles of interpretation. Now, remember, Paul was a Pharisee. And Paul read the scriptures through the hermeneutics of the Pharisees. That is, through the set of principles that the Pharisees believed. That's how he read the Old Testament scriptures. So here's the kind of things which Paul believed as a Pharisee. This is what his hermeneutics dictated to him. First, salvation, never based on grace, always based upon human merit. Secondly, salvation, never based on faith alone, but it's got to be faith plus your own righteousness. Yes, you have to believe in God. Yes, you have to believe the scriptures. But your own righteousness is what's going to establish you. Belief, following the law, uh, personal rights, that's what makes you saved. Thirdly, and this is critical. Yes, as a Pharisee, Paul believed in the Messiah to come. But he didn't believe the Messiah was coming to die for sin. He didn't recognize the cross as part of the prophetic picture. He thought Jesus was going to, excuse me, he thought the Messiah was going to come in order to conquer the Romans, free the Jews from uh, the, the dominion of the Roman Empire, and set up the nation of Israel as a chief among all nations in the world. That was his pharisaical interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. Therefore, out of that hermeneutic, Jesus must be a false Messiah. Jesus must be an imposter. As well, the resurrection story must be a complete hoax. And Paul followed what the chief priests and scribes had said, and the disciples stole the body. Now, those are Paul's hermeneutical convictions when he was a Pharisee persecuting the church. This is what he strongly believed to be the right understanding of all of these events historically. He believed that he and all of his fellow faithful Jews who didn't believe in Jesus were the ones who had the true light and that Jewish Christians were in fact living in darkness and following the ways of Satan. But then Paul encounters the resurrected Jesus. His pharisaical hermeneutic is entirely destroyed. It's completely overturned. In its place, Paul has a new interpretation of how God saves, what salvation really is, why Jesus went to the cross, And we see this summarized in verse 18. Paul gets this new mission, this new purpose, this this whole new life given by Jesus. And it was to, quote, open the eyes of those who were spiritually lost so that they might turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order to receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance amongst all those who are believers and who are set apart by faith in Jesus. Now, this transformation in Paul's hermeneutic 
is incredibly significant and it's incredibly weighty evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Because nothing less than some form of absolute proof could ever have convinced Paul that he had been wrong. Nothing could ever have convinced him to give up his belief system as a Pharisee and then to embrace those religious ideas that were almost 180 degrees different from what he had believed. But it's also the case that this radical change in Paul's religious beliefs brought an entire change in Paul's life. Up until this point, Paul's, uh, Paul's climb to fame and fortune was entirely based upon his fanatical persecution of the name of Jesus and those Jewish believers who were following Christ. But now in a moment's time, all of this is gone. His career is lost. From a worldly point of view, there's nothing that's going to replace it. Paul has suffered the loss of everything that had been an important, that had given his life meaning at the moment that he encountered the risen Christ. And that's why it's so reasonable to say that nothing less than a true historical encounter with the risen Jesus could ever have changed the Apostle Paul. Paul's conversion is clearly among the best historical witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Then we come to the final part of what uh, Paul says before King Agrippa. Now Paul presents himself as a harassed witness in defense of the resurrection. Uh, Paul wants King Agrippa to recognize that he has defended this claim of Jesus rising from the dead in the face of constant hostility from his own people, the Jews. So in verse 21, he tells King Agrippa, he says this, for this reason, for the reason of, of standing for the name of Christ, for the reason for standing for Christ's resurrection from the dead, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now the value of what Paul says here to the king is simply this. With his own kinsmen always harassing him and seeking to kill him, why would Paul keep claiming that he had met the risen Jesus if it were not true? Why suffer needlessly? Where's the benefit to Paul? Why would any sane person put himself in this kind of harm's way for something that he knew wasn't even true? Now, critics will say something like this. Well, there are people who do all sorts of things for a lie. Hundreds of Muslims are doing suicide acts of violence all too often. It's certainly proper to see them as deluded and dying for the sake of a lie. What's different about Paul? Now, of course, that's a rather shallow analysis because Paul isn't in the same category. Uh, those who are willing to die like Muslim jihadists are willing to die are dying sincerely believing that those 72 virgins are waiting for them once they leave this world. They're sincerely believing that. But with the Apostle Paul, Paul knows rather he encountered the living Christ on the road to Damascus or not. Paul knows whether he's standing for something, not just that he sincerely believes is true, but something he knows whether it's true or not. 
Paul is the one person in all of human history who absolutely knows what happens on the road to Damascus. Either he really saw Jesus, or in some manner or other, he made it up. But Paul consistently claims that he didn't make it up. He consistently claims that his belief in the resurrection of Jesus is rational and true. The reason why Paul was willing to face all of the harassment, all of the persecution from the Jews, even to die if necessary, because Paul knew that Jesus had risen. Now, Paul's unwillingness to back down, his unwillingness to recant his belief that Jesus was resurrected, rather than his willingness to undergo all the persecutions, his willingness to face death, to face death greatly strengthens the reliability of his claim. But further, Paul uses the harassment which he experienced, the persecution he experienced, as evidence to anyone who might doubt his claim about the resurrection. Uh, Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 15:32, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, particularly pointing to Jesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Uh, even on this occasion in front of King Agrippa, it's possible that Paul actually said a whole lot more to King Agrippa than we have recorded in the text, because after all, we know that what Luke records in the book of Acts and all these speeches and sermons and so forth are really summarizations. It's never the full and complete text. So it's possible that Paul might have testified to King Agrippa what he had actually written to the Corinthian church, where he gave a full account of the kinds of persecutions and harassments that he had faced for the Christian faith from the Jews. This is recorded in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25, because this is what Paul says. Five times he was given the 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes, the maximum that could be given to anyone under the law. These whippings were the sentence given by the synagogue court and administered by the synagogue attendant, which indicates that on five separate occasions, Paul had been arrested by the Jews, put on trial, and then given this punishment. Three further times, we read, Paul says, that he was beaten with rods. So there's three other occasions that he experienced the synagogue trials, and that was the punishment that was given. Then he also tells us that one time uh, a mob took him in a lynching kind of situation, but they didn't use rope, they used stones. He was stoned. They tried to put him to death, and yet he escaped that. So Paul's question, in essence, is this. Why would he suffer all of this needlessly? Why would he put himself into this kind of harm's way for something he knew to be a lie? History doesn't give us any real answer to that question, except Paul's own answer. Jesus risen from the dead. Now, I want to finish this presentation of the Apostle Paul, his own witness for the resurrection, with what is one of the sweetest testimonies that Paul gives about what brought him through all of this. And we find this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, where Paul does in about eight verses a short recitation of what all of this means to him. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he's talking about all the Jews who think that they've earned their salvation. Paul says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness, righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So, repeating the words again of Dr. J.S. Whale at Cambridge, belief in the resurrection is not an appendage. It is the Christian faith. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we celebrate today not a religious sentiment, but we celebrate today the basis of our faith in your Son, Jesus. That not only did he come into this world and live the life that he lived and died suffering upon the cross, but in that death, you atoned for our sins. And this has been demonstrated in such a powerful way by you raising Jesus from the dead. And so we pray that we would always remember Resurrection Day as the day which you have made so that we might rejoice and be glad in it. In Jesus' name, amen.